From Sydney Opera House, welcome to It's a Long Story, a podcast exploring the stories behind the ideas. I'm your host, Hamish McDonald. My name is Henry Rollins. I am a writer, radio show host, photographer, and I guess a provocateur. When I was growing up, I was asked frequently, Henry, what do you want to do when you grow up? I never had any aspirations to do anything. I just wanted to be away from school. Henry Rollins is an American musician, actor, television, radio host, and a comedian. He even worked for a time selling ice creams at Haagen-Dazs. Rollins fronted the West Coast punk band Black Flag and later the Rollins Band. He campaigns for a full inventory of political causes, among them LGBT rights, World Hunger Relief, the West Memphis Three, and an end to war. Born Henry Garfield in Washington, D.C. in 1961, the only child of Iris and Paul Garfield. His childhood, he says, is a sore spot. It fills me with rage right down to the bone marrow. A turning point came for Henry Rollins about a decade ago, a departure from music into spoken word performance. For me, music was a time and a place. I never really enjoyed being in a band, says Henry Rollins. It was in me and it needed to come out, like a 25-year exorcism. One day, I woke up and I didn't have any more lyrics. Henry Rollins, paint me a picture of life growing up in Washington, D.C. in the 60s. It was the 60s when I was born. And as you know, America was in a very turbulent time. Uh, By the time I was in third grade, 1967, 68, you've got a war that is dividing a country. You have racial tension that is turning into street riots and things catching on fire. I lived in this nation's capital, Washington, D.C., and the times were very heady, if you will, where standing on my corner waiting for my school bus to take me to school, I would see hippies rolling cars. The cops would come and roll the cars back onto their wheels. The hippies would come back out and roll the car back on to its roof. I would see uh, mace canisters that had been used in the riot the night before. My friends and I would find them and look at them. My mother's uh, car hood of her 1968 VW Fastback had a dent in it from a mace canister that bounced off as she was caught in a riot. And so those times were intense because I'm a white kid often going to a school with a lot of black kids. And they're calling me, you know, Cracker, Bama, which I never understood what that was. But I'm white, so I'm sticking out and these kids are hitting me. Are these kids racist? No. We're just little idiots running around. They're hearing it from their parents. So it's very hard to be a kid and try and socialize with other kids who are angry at your skin color. And they would gang up on me and I would lose control of my bladder and everyone would laugh. So I was easy to scare. I'm not a tough guy. And so I became very politicized as a little kid and very racially aware. Thankfully, my mother made me understand that racism is bad and I never held a racist thought. But um, it was certainly around me. What's the moment that stands out in your memory of them ganging up and you losing control of your bladder? Is there one moment that you're thinking of? Uh, it was one of my first days of school, and I didn't you – know, I'm just a kid. I don't understand racism, and these kids didn't understand it either. It's just what people were doing. And they all got around me, and they're shaking their fists, and I'm trembling in my Sears and Roebuck Bermuda shorts. And, you know, I looked ridiculous. And uh, I, I pissed my pants, basically. I don't know how else to say it. And I remember one kid yelling, white boy pissing. 
white boy pissing. And everyone laughed. And it was the humiliation, just the, the sheer overwhelming terror of that. It's just, it's, it's like a tidal wave of like, ah, and nothing prepared me for that. No, losing the game of pin the tail at the donkey, on the donkey at the birthday party. This was kids in my face waving their fists. I, I don't know what prepares you for that except that. It was very confusing. And I asked my mom, I'd go home doing that thing that kids do where they hyperventilate for a day and a half, like, mama, what the? And she goes, well, honey, just go to school and smile and, and say, hi, I'm Henry. Let's be friends. I'm like, that won't work. And it didn't. It sucked. And so, uh, that was, uh, my early socialization was like, kids are scary. So you have that confrontation, that humiliation, and you have a consciousness of the race issue in America. Absolutely, yeah. And your own experience of it. How does a mother convince a young child not to be racist or not to interpret that uh, for themselves in a way that is negative? Kids are pretty uh, good on the uptake. You can brief kids on stuff. You've been around them. They're not dumb. If you, if you really lay it out for them, uh, they can get it. And I say, why are they mad at me? And she goes, look, they're not mad at you. This is, we're at a very interesting time. And she, you know, I'm a little kid, so she can't give me high level stuff. But she said, look, they're just calling you names because they don't know you. And so you just got to be friends with them. And here's the sad, here's the sad takeaway from that. The one time when those kids start, stopped hitting me, teasing me, pushing me down the stairs, throwing me in the urinal and smashing my face into the water fountain, is when I was able to, I was on my way to the little boy's room and one kid came up to me and started hassling me and I went crazy on him and I, I just started wailing on him and that word got around and after that, no one touched me again. And so that's sadly, it was not two young people becoming civilized. It was an act of violence where I established myself in the pecking order, which is what happens in prison, I think. You got to go like throw someone off the balcony and everyone goes like, all right, he can hang. And so I went, you know, I'm not a good fighter, but I was like, ah, just flailing on this kid and he started crying. And everyone said, oh, okay. And the same thing happened to me many years later in high school. I was at an all-boys school. I was a 10th grader and a senior, a 12th grader, was giving me grief all the time. And so one day he called me a name and I called him a name back and he went, let's go. So we went outside and I, I hit him so solidly, my knuckle knocked uh, his teeth into his cheek and he had this bloody gaping hole in his face and he was taken to the hospital and stitched up. So I was a 10th grader who kicked the crap out of a senior, like he was stitched up because of me. It's not like, oh, you dragged him around, like you, you, you won that one. The teachers liked me, my peers liked me, and the seniors went, all right, <laughs> all right. We didn't like that guy anyway. And unfortunately, when things became okay, it was only because some violence cleared the area. And that was not an instruction to me, like that's how you get respect. I don't think it's how, not how I want to get respect, because that'll come back and kill you later. But it's, it was two poignant experiences of my life. I read a quote from you saying, I have no happy childhood memories of my mother or my father. Zero. 
Can you explain that? Yeah, the, it was it was anxiety. It was fear, fear of my mother, fear of her boyfriends, fear of my father, fear of his wife, fear of her son, my stepbrother. Uh, they're scary people. My mom wasn't necessarily scary. She's just an adult trying to raise a, a, a wildly spastic, anti-unsocial child. I didn't get along well with others. So I was on far, I was on Ritalin, and I was. You'd been diagnosed with, with ADHD. Yeah, and I was, you know, rocketing around the room and you know, appalling grades, tutors, summer school, because you know they need to put a leash on me and tie me to a chair, otherwise I'm flying around the room. And so my mom was raising this hysterical, easily goaded into tears child, me, and trying to have a life. And so she's a, a woman in the world working for a living very hard. And she's got this screeching monkey boy child. And so she would have boyfriends and they'd come over and they weren't always nice to me. And some of them were really terrifying. And so there's that. So Why? They, How? One of them was a mean drunk and he didn't like me and he threatened to hurt me and he'd pull out a knife and go, here, give me your finger. And I'm, you know, that sent me into, you know, I, I'd hyperventilate for, hide under my bed for a year and a half. And because I was a little kid, I, I believed he was going to, you know, I really thought uh, he was going to hurt me. I believed it. And so it was just anxiety. School caused me anxiety because I, I couldn't keep up with other kids, couldn't play sports. You know, I was just like, they'd bring me out on the basketball court so they could chuck the ball at my head. And so you, none of it was fun. And the only times I didn't have any fun I, or happiness, I had neutrality. I had moments of a profound lack of anxiety. And those moments were supplied by being alone in a room with music on. And to this day, that's about as happy as I get is uh, me and my record player. Like when I'm off the road... Uh, on the weekends, I'm listening to way too much music. You've talked about being in the wrong place at the wrong time as a child, uh, getting yourself into situations you didn't understand uh, about humiliation. How did that sort of thing shape you? Uh, I think it, there's some aspects that were really good. Uh, it really made me understand I've only got me. I don't do unity. I don't do you and me together. I got me. You got you. If you're on fire, I'll put you out. If you're hungry, I'll give you half my sandwich. And that's not because I'm a humanitarian guy. Those are decisions I make not to be a schmuck as often as possible. And so those are – my morality is all choices. I think anyone's morality is. I was not goaded into being a helpful person. I think it's a way to really rock this uh, homo sapiens house party we're having. And so – I'm an angry person. A lot of that comes from my youth. My father instructed me. He was a, a hardcore capitalist, a PhD in economics. He was a money numbers guy. And to him, how you are, your worth is your fiscal worth. And no one ever had to tell me twice, go get a job. As soon as I could start working, got me out of the house. I had my own money. I never had an allowance. I had jobs. I had a paycheck. I had an adult understanding of inventory, cash flow, all of that. And my father instilled that in me. Not like, go out there and get a job. It's like, get away from you and I'll go get a job because the adult world is way more rational to me than the world of my peers. And as an older, rageful teenager, 20-something, I thought to myself, oh, you like money so much? Here's what I'm going to do. Here's my revenge. I'm not going to come back to your place and toss you out a window. Uh, don't, I'm too pretty to do time. Uh, I'm going to out-earn you, your wife, my mom, 
and her husband, I'm going to out-earn all of you combined. I'm going to have a bigger bank account than all of yours put together. Do I appreciate money? Sure, I like paying for – you know, I don't like dining and dashing. Do I value money that thinking it makes me a better person? No, not at all. Do I have more money in my bank account than all of those people combined? Yeah, I do. And that is where a lot of my anger comes from like, oh, you want, you want to see something? I'll show you something. You better put on sunglasses because it's real bright. And you better look out because I'm coming. And that's kind of how I kind of go at everything. You say you're, angry, you're an angry man now. Yeah. When you are alone and you're reflecting on that, is there an individual that that anger is directed at? Is there a moment that that's derived from? Uh, a lot of it is from the parents, the people they married, uh, the people they hung out with. And all those times I never stood up. I'm mad at myself. And so I never said, hey, you should, you should stop doing that to me. I never once did that. I never once said to my father, uh, what you said is a load of crap. I just went, okay. And so I'm mad at myself for never uh, standing up in those moments. I should have. I just didn't have the fortitude. I got it later on. And a I, I reckon my early life to be a, a bow and arrow with the arrow being pulled back or one long inhalation because so I didn't have the courage to exhale and roar. So it was about 20 years of inhaling, basically like, okay, just taking it, taking it, taking it. And then right around age 19 or 20 came the exhale. Like, and here it comes. It's, a, it's years in the making. And that's to this day where I'm coming from. It is perhaps far more articulate than it was when I was 20. I've got prettier words to use, and I mean no one any harm. When you were 14, I think you started doing weights. Yeah. This is important for you. Yeah, it's huge. Because it gave me a sense of achievement. I had a teacher, and from this teacher, Vietnam vet, and one day he said to me, uh, you are a skinny little, and the word I won't repeat, okay, thanks. He said, you're going to go to Sears and Roebuck, you're going to buy a weight set, and I'm going to teach you how to use it, and you're going to do every single thing I tell you to do with that weight set, which is more encouragement, as tough as it was, than my father ever gave me. So I bought the weight set, put it in my mom's car, had to have the man help me, because it was 110 pounds, I couldn't pick it up. And I did every curl and whatever I was told to do, and all of a sudden, my appetite goes from zero to like, I need to eat an entire cow. I'm so hungry. And he said, you're not allowed to look at yourself until I t say you can. So I went from like October, November, like, I don't know, like two and a half, three months of just growing, lifting and eating like a locust. And he goes, okay. And we were having the exams for Christmas break. He goes, okay, last day of exams, Christmas break starts. You can go home and look at yourself. And I had been religiously not looking at myself because he told me not to. And I looked at myself in the mirror. I was like, damn. I, my body had changed. I had physicality. I could hit myself and go, wow, there's something there. And all of a sudden, my feet hit the ground. I had traction. I had some self-esteem, which I never understood what that was like. I'm like, damn, I did that because no one can lift those weights for you. It's not a team sport. You're there alone. You're lifting those weights in the basement. And that was the, one of the most substantive events of my life. I'm like, wow, I can be here and I can do it alone. I can do this for me. And after that, my whole mindset changed. I'm like, wow, I exist. I have a physical presence in the world. There is someone in the shoes I'm wearing. 
and it was a big deal, and it gave me a lot of uh, a lot of wind in my sails. I can never thank that guy enough. I've never seen him again. The last thing he ever said to me, "Hey, if I never see you again, so what?" I was in his carpool. He dropped me off, and sometimes I actually walk to that spot. He dropped me off because it's in my old neighborhood. When I go back to visit, I go, "Yeah, that's where he dropped me off." I've never seen him again. Somewhat counterintuitively, perhaps you got a job uh, selling ice cream for Hagen Das. Yeah, good job. Yeah, great job. I still keep in touch with my boss. He got me my first apartment. I was living in my car, and uh, I did my, my my you know internship there. Forty five minutes, you learn how to do everything. And I didn't meet him at first, so I did a half day because my friends all worked there. They like, come on, do this with us. Here's a job. I'll take it. It's called the punk rock Hagen Das because all my punk rock friends worked there. I start doing. I'm an overachiever. So I'm cleaning stuff, and I meet him the next my next shift. He says, "So you're the new guy?" I said, "Yes, sir." Um, you are more popular flavors. You don't have tubs of that ice cream warm enough to scoop. If I were you, I would rearrange your thawing system. Uh, the copper piping is filthy. Customers see that. Uh, some guy came in and tried to grift uh, one of your employees with a give me two tens with the 20. I'll give you the five and the five ones. Because I've been around cash registers since I was like seventh grade. I could do change in my sleep. And I said, uh, that needs to be cleaned. You should make me a shift manager. I couldn't believe I was saying this to him. And he looked at me like I just slapped him. And he said, oh, yeah? And I went, uh, yeah. He said, he said, okay, you work here six weeks and don't screw up, and I'll consider it. And he made me a shift manager two weeks later because he came in like, why are you here early? I said, because I just polished all that copper. And I went across the street to the drugstore with your money, and I bought some copper cleaner. Here's the receipt. And he was like, Wow, it looks really good. And, and, I, and I said, I've been uh, cleaning all this because it's a food place. You're going to get inspected. I went on top of the refrigerator and I found this dust and I just cleaned it all. And he went, damn, within a year, I was the head manager of that place doing all his money, doing the night deposit. He trusted me. And he said, um, one day I smelled a little rank because I was showering in the work sink because I was living in my car. He said, where do you live? I said, uh, sir, I, I live in the back of my car. He said, okay, we need to get you an apartment. I, I have no credit. He said, Find the place you want and tell the guy to call me. So I found a little a little box to live in, and uh, they called Steve. And Steve said, um, "Here's my number. I own this Hagen Dazs in Georgetown. If he screws up on the rent, call me. I got this." And he gave me my first line of credit. And uh, I'm I'm getting a little moist just thinking about him now. Um, he got me my first apartment. He believed in me. He trusted me with his money. I make the night deposit every night. And when I left for Black Flag, he said, "This isn't going to work." And so when you come back with your tail between your legs, you can have your job back. And I said, thanks, man, because it might not work out. Well, it did work out. And he and I remain friends to this day. That is a 36-year-old friendship. So that's 1981. You leave. You move to L.A. You join Black Flag. Yeah. Why? How? And what did it mean? It seems somehow to have been a channel for all of this anger. Yeah, well, I was a, this, you know, minimum wage working guy doing those long shifts as you do. And, you know, not getting much but bottles of Coca-Cola and, and top ramen noodles for dinner from it. And I, I was in a little band. We had like 35-second songs. And I knew Black Flag. They would come through town. I'd watch them. They're my favorite band. And I'd watch the singer and go, man, I, 
I can do that. I mean, man, I'd really like to sing it harder and make it just be terrifying because Des was a great singer. He's amazing. But I just saw I, I can do that different and, man, you should give me a shot. And so they played New York and not D.C. in early 81. And I got a day off work. I drove up to, to New York and got on the guest list. I know those guys. I kind of walked in a sound check and said, hey, can I hang out? They're like, yeah, man. And after the show, they played another show. They went down the street to a bar, and I helped him load in. Watched the guy get stabbed. And we loaded in, and I'm looking at my watch going, damn, I got to drive back to D.C. I got to, like, take a sh- work sink shower and get a new T-shirt and go do a shift. And so I said, hey, can you play this song for me called Clocked In? It's one of their songs about going to work. And they said, yeah. And they said, hey, this is for this guy, Henry, called Clocked In. It's about going to work because he has to go to work. And Des, the singer, looked at me and handed me the microphone like, you should sing it. I hopped up on stage and went, wow, okay. And I sang it, 90 seconds of song. And I'll never forget looking at the members of Black Flag, look at me and go like, whoa. And this audience doesn't know who I am at all. And I remember the audience looking at me like, damn, this is, (laughs) wow. And I gave the mic back. I went, well, I'll see you. And I got in my little car and I drove back to Washington going, wow, I was in Black Flag for 90 seconds, man. That I'm going to talk about this for the rest of my life. The next day... One of the band members called the ice cream store and said, hey, we're still in New York, and Des doesn't want to sing anymore. He wants to play rhythm guitar, so we're looking for a singer. You were pretty good on stage the other night with us. You want to come up an audition? And I, I immediately assessed what I had to lose. Uh, I could lose the apron. I could lose the scoop. So I went up there and I auditioned, and they didn't have any records out yet, really, a few singles. So most of the songs, I just kind of made stuff up. We did two sets. They had a little band meeting for a few minutes and said, you're in. And I was in disbelief. I said, in what? They go, in Black Flag. I go, doing what? They go, you are the singer in Black Flag. Are you ready? I'm like, no, yes, okay, what do I do? I was like shocked. I was like, someone slapped me. They said, you go back to your apartment, you get rid of your stuff, you pack a duffel bag, here's our tour itinerary, here's all the lyrics, get ready, get set, and we're going to go to LA and record the first ever Black Flag album. I go, well, who's singing? They go, do you get this or not? It's you. Do you want this or not? I was so stunned. And just numb, we're holding this this stack of lyrics. And I went back to D.C. and my best friend Ian Mackay called and said, where have you been? I said, I went up to New York. I'm in Black Flag. I said, what do you think? It's the only person I've ever asked an opinion of. I said, what do you think? And he said, are you kidding? You're going to be great. I'll take you to the bus station. And I still have his handwritten directions on how to get to the bus station. And I still have the ticket from uh, Washington, D.C. to Detroit because that's where I was going to meet up with them. So I beat them to the venue, Clutch Cargo, I think it was. And I walk in like with my duffel bag at like two in the afternoon. The band was still limping from Chicago or something. And I walk in, there's a woman behind the bar. She said, can I help you? And I said, um, yes, I'm, I'm the singer in Black Flag. That's the first person I told that to. And she said, would you like something to drink? And I said, oh, I'll have a Coke, please. And I sat there with that flat, awful tasting Coke that comes out of that gun thing with his syrup and water, and I just sat there waiting for Black Flag going, damn, I'm the singer in Black Flag. And the rest is, as they say, history. A critic, Calvin Johnson, describes seeing you. He says, Henry was incredible, pacing back and forth, lunging, lurching, growling. It was all real, the most intense emotional experiences I've ever seen. What's going on there? Is that the same kid in the playground that learns 
that if he goes crazy, he can intimidate and he can get a reaction and he can create the social order? No, that's what the music made me do. I just, uh, as David Lee Roth once said, form follows function. I'm sure it's not his, but I heard it there. And I was just reacting to as to how the songs made me feel. To me, the music was physical. The singer should be physical. Those beats, those lyrics, that crazy guitar of Greg Ginn's, it was electrifying. And so what you saw was how I reacted. It's not like I'm going to stalk around. It's like, I don't know what I was doing. I watched films of myself from those days. I'm like, oh, so that's what it looked like. I have no memory. But there is this energy there. It looks angry. It looks oh, angry. Yeah. What's going on inside your head? Just a uh, kind of crazy fog. Like if a fog was fire, like if a fog could incinerate you, it was that. Where I have like no memories of the shows. But is it performance as well? No, I'm singing from my DNA. I mean, we practiced so much. You knew those songs. We would practice like it was almost made you want to go home. And so by the time I was singing, August 21st, 1981 was my first show with the band. But they made me practice like it was a new kind of hard work. We'd walk out of it after eight hours and we do one song for like 10 times and then do the next one five times. And they go like, no, you're not singing it very well. I'm like, I'm killing myself here. And they're like, you're, you're late on these beats. Get better. And like, Des would help me. He was like, look, man, just like try and, cause I'm just rushing everything. I'm just really just racing ahead of the band. Cause I'd never been in a band with like three minute songs. And so I had to learn to be more disciplined. And Black Flag was very exact. We played very tight. And so by the time I got out there, all of that was internalized. And what you saw was just me being in the moment. I wasn't thinking. I wasn't even thinking about the lyrics. They just came out. I've watched a video of you on YouTube with, uh, it looks like a teenager. He's a kid interviewing you. He's clearly a huge fan. It's backstage somewhere. I think it's 1984. He is looking at you as some kind of hero, I think, and you're awful to him. Hmm. You're intimidating. You're tormenting. Why? I don't know. I got email about that interview. I've never seen it. I guess I was mad. I can't defend bad behavior. I will say this. Uh, you try uh, living in public in turbulent times with a microphone in front of your face all the time, from anyone from the L.A. Times to some kid with a, uh, with a camera – and if we recorded every one of your moments, it, they might not all be so flattering. And so what you see with me is the truth. Some of it is pleasant. Some of it isn't. Uh, would I be like that with anyone now? Probably not. But I can't excuse bad behavior, especially not my own. So I have no excuse. I guess I just sucked that day. Watching it, though, I thought about you as a kid, as a teenager, feeling humiliated by grown-ups. Yeah. It very uh, well could have been what happened that night. There's a lot of, you know, ashtrays getting thrown, a lot of people spitting. But it sounds like I'm excusing bad behavior. I, I don't want to do that. I was mean to the kid, so I've been told by many letters. And uh, I've never met that person. I'm sure he's a grown-up man now if he's still around. And uh, I owe him an apology. I'd love to do that. Uh, I would apologize without hesitation. But uh, I don't know what else to say about that. Be a great reveal in this interview if I was that kid. <laughs> yeah, uh, you'd be a little older, I'm sure. But um, no, those days were those days were really intense. And someone would say to me, "I saw you once, man. You hit my friend. Did your friend do anything? Well, he spat on you. Like, okay, 
Oh, I remember that guy. Yeah, the cops came. Yeah, I remember that night. And then I can almost nail it down to the month and the day and the year. So 84, I go, no, no, it was actually it was 83. Oh, you're right. <laughs> so yeah, it was a left, actually. I hit him with a left. So one day you just run out of lyrics. Yeah. And you become this spoken word performer. Yeah. This well, no, I, I, just, just so you know, I, I've been doing talking shows since 1983. Um, when I ran out of lyrics was about 13 years ago or so more. And I just I, – now then I started doing more of everything else. The music used to take a large chunk of my time. So I was, you know, more writing, more acting, more talking shows, more, more, more of the things I was already kind of sort of doing. There is an anger still watching your performances. Uh, but there seems to be more of a focus, more of a sure. direction. I try. What is it that you want? What's the objective of your talking? I want to hit with precision and clarity where if you and I have any disagreements, you can detail with great exactitude our disagreements. And there's no ambiguity. I, I, I look – I seek to escape ambiguity by working on my language skills. And so if I'm going to make a point on stage, I research it. If I talk about a country, if you've ever suffered through one of my talking shows, I never talk about a country I haven't been to ever. If I talk about North Korea, I talk about the time I was there, not what I saw on the news. And I only uh, – I come from as real a point of view as I possibly can. And that's what I strive for. I, clarity, impact, and maybe you inspire some people by having a weird life, which I work at doing. I try and li live an eventful life. I work at it. So for someone then that has had this lifelong relationship with anger, is this somehow an answer? Yeah, it's a place for it to go. My anger leads to curiosity. A, a cause like the West Memphis Three, these three guys jammed up in prison. I saw what was happening to them and I sought to help them. I spent 10 years working on their behalf like a lot of other people. I didn't want to help them because I'm a really nice, huggy guy. I saw them and, and how they were getting – ripped by the American justice system and realized that could have been me. I went after their freedom by going after the state of Arkansas. And basically, my POV, my posture was, Arkansas, here I come, and it's going to hurt. And a byproduct is they're getting out, and I'm not going to stop until they get out. I'm not here to help. I am coming from vengeance to get these guys out. And um, we got them out. Uh, thanks to great lawyers and a ton of people all over the world helping. But I, I helped, not because I want to be helpful, but I'm trying to right wrongs. It's my anger I capitalize on. I give a lot of money to an orphanage in Los Angeles. I have for many years. I do benefit shows sometimes and go, here, take the money. I like kids as we do, but I'm not giving the orphanage money for the last 20-some years because I'm a nice guy. I'm not a nice guy. These kids got oil spotted by their parents. They, they, they got screwed and they're living in a dorm. They're living in a holding facility for kids with no parents. Can I help by sending some money so they can get art supplies and pants? I'm there out of anger for their lot in life. I'm mad at their parents and I'm not allowed to throw them out a window. So I'll just send a check. Like I said, I'm too good looking to do time. And so I'm angry like that. My anger leads to things getting done. No dogs get kicked. No walls get punched. You know what I mean? It's constructive anger. Angry Henry Rollins, thank you very much. Sure. It's a Long Story is recorded at the Sydney Opera House as part of the Talks and Ideas program headed by Anne Mossop. Our show is hosted by me, Hamish McDonald, and is produced and edited by Cara Jensen-McKinnon. 
Our theme music is by Rishikesh Hiwe. We're recorded by Jason Blackwell and Oliver Brighton, mixed by Brendan Zacharias. And our executive producer is Danielle Harvey.